The FT's How to Build a Healthy City podcast is supported by Novo Nordisk. This is Bari miso, and the ingredients is big different. This one is just a simple Bari and soybeans and salt. That's it. Three ingredients. Another, my favourite miso. Yes. That's Leo Lewis, the FT's Tokyo correspondent. The Japanese people are famous for their longevity. The country is consistently in the top three for life expectancy in the world. And it's not just about living longer. It's also about healthy life expectancy, the number of years of good health you can enjoy. The secret? Researchers have pinned that on the traditional Japanese diet. But, like everywhere else in the world, people in big cities aren't eating traditional foods as much. And they don't like Japanese traditional food. They like fast food or convenient stores, you know, obento food and cheap. They don't like cooking. So the question is, are we really too busy to eat well? And how do we move back to more traditional, healthy diets? How do you build a healthy city? That's the subject of this series. My name's Darren Dodd, and I'm the editor of FT Health Reports. For this podcast, I've been speaking to six FT journalists in cities around the world, hearing from the politicians, health experts and local residents changing lives through creative interventions. So, Leo, you lived in Tokyo for about five years now. How has your own diet changed? Well, the main change has probably been that there's certainly a good deal less meat in the diet certainly a bit more fish and really overall it's soybeans in one form or another tofu and this dish that I've very much come to like called natto they just feature a lot more in day-to-day eating and I'm hoping that that's a little bit more healthy overall. Yeah and is that the traditional Japanese diet or is that a kind of modern twist on it? So traditional Japanese diet is a very broad definition, and that has a lot to do with the fact that it's different across the country. From the top to the bottom of Japan, you've got a lot of variation. So up in Hokkaido in the Northern Ireland, where it's very cold for large parts of the year, there's a lot more dairy. As you get further down south, you start seeing buckwheat noodles appearing more in the diet, fish in other parts, particularly down in Hiroshima and that part of Japan, you've got a lot of shellfish being used. And then right down in Okinawa, you've got these bitter goods. That's a part of the country where people seem to live well into their late 90s. So you've got this big variation. And then sitting here in Tokyo, we can pick and choose from all of them because there are restaurants representing all the different cuisines from all across Japan in Tokyo. So we're, uh, we're really fortunate here. And a lot of it is extremely healthy. And we, we keep using the word the traditional Japanese diet, but I'd imagine perhaps in big cities there's a lot more processed food like there is in other countries. Well, that's right, yeah. I mean, if you sort of talk to Japanese about what they eat at home, they'll tell you, you know, they have rice or they have a bit of fish, they might have some miso soup and so on, and that sort of describes the ideal situation. But actually, for a lot of people, the ideal situation isn't realisable on a day-to-day basis because they're working very late. You know, you've got couples where both halves are working, that's absolutely normal in Japan now, and neither has much time to cook a meal. So you've got people who are looking for a quick way to eat at the end of the day, And for many years, fast food jumped into that gap. And then more recently, the convenience stores that are really everywhere in Japan now and are trying to provide much more of a food service and a competition really with fast food and very successfully. So a lot of people are getting their evening meal, their lunches as well, in a convenience store. And those foods are often fried food and so on. There's a shift in the diet because of that, certainly. 
And what's this 1975 diet? So 1975 has been identified by certain researchers into the history of Japanese eating as a sort of absolute sweet spot. And it's there for a number of reasons. And partly it's because you're coming out of the immediate post-war period where there really were significant shortages for a period after the Second World War. And you're just getting into that phase where Japan's economy is growing really strongly. It's importing certain new foods that it wants, but also its entire agricultural base is back on track. It's booming as an economy. And also you've got average families in Japan reaching a point of household wealth, household spending that allows them to eat healthily generally across the population. That point was reached just at the stage where there was still a great belief in the way that the diet should look. So the money was being spent on good things. It was being spent on more vegetables, more fruits and higher quality meats and fish and so on. And that was the exact moment at which things also slightly started to go wrong in that that's the year where you start seeing the first fast food restaurants cropping up around Japan and the diet shifting slightly more with that wealth to a kind of Western diet that hasn't necessarily been overall a wonderful introduction for Japanese health. We're a few minutes early, which is perfect. She teaches up there. I was so interested in this idea that there was this sweet spot 45 years ago that uh, I actually went to meet a woman who's trying to encourage people to return to some of those practices. It's a little residential area that we've come to. We're by a river, one of the many little rivers that runs into Tokyo Bay. And we are just a few metres away from Yoshiko Harimaya's house. And she is something of a celebrity in Japan when it comes to healthy eating. She's made a profession out of teaching healthy eating. I had the pleasure of attending one of her classes in February. She's very well known for taking the view that Japanese food, although it has a very healthy image around the world, can be actually not terribly healthy if you eat, for example, a lot of white rice, a lot of fatty foods, a lot of the delicious things that are available in every restaurant that we know and love across Japan. Her mission is to teach people about organic eating and about the different really beneficial foods that are available in Japan, but that habit means people don't eat as much as they should have. Konnichiwa. Yoshiko-sensei. So this is Yoshiko-sensei, and she's going to teach you to make food that is actively good for you, that it's actively going to make you healthier. And she teaches people that are coming to her because they want to make a difference to their personal health, they want to make a difference to their lives, and they don't know how to do it. We've come into a proper Japanese house where you've been taking our shoes off at the door, negotiating some... Negotiating. And she stands there telling everyone, sometimes quite aggressively, what sort of changes they need to make to their lives and to their food. Very On the way in, just as we were taking off our slippers, we saw her father, a very sprightly 84-year-old, on his way out for a stroll. He greeted us and we passed him and then went upstairs to this area that she set up as her schoolroom, which has got a functioning kitchen she has set up on this occasion for an experiment that she's very, very keen to show us. I'm just going to ask in Japanese, but... 
I wanted to find out where she came up with this idea, what started her thinking about proactively healthy eating and where her interest came in returning to the traditional Japanese diet. 18 years ago, my ex-husband got sick. He had cirrhosis. Before we discovered he had cirrhosis, we eat Western way. Breakfast, you know, toast and jam and butter and coffee and some yogurt and fruit, like you, you know. <laughs> After we find out he had cirrhosis, we have changed the diet 180 degrees, you know. And you basically, you changed to a Japanese Japanese way, diet, yeah, right? mm, Japanese diet. Tell me what kind of people come to your classes and what is it that they hope to learn from coming to you? Mm, many of the students are not suffering major illness, but they want to change the diet and change their body. What sort of ages? Mm-hmm. What sort of ages come? Okay, youngest students are 22 or 23, and the oldest one is 75. 75. They want to Expect. heal their body with good diet and you know we have a long history Japanese history so for us food as a medicine have you know this word yes food as a medicine every Japanese people knows that but after the second world war we just forget right so that is the reason they come to me I mean to foreigners like me Mm -hmm. You know, Japan has an image mm-hmm. of a very healthy country. Yeah. You know, that people live for a very long time. Mm-hmm. People seem to be very, uh, they use this word, genki. <laughs> it means energetic and mm-hmm. lively. Mm-hmm. People seem to lead good, healthy mm-hmm. lives. Mm-hmm. But you say that actually a lot of people in Japan have a diet that's not, not so good. good. Especially young generation. Young generation doesn't have much money to get the high-quality food, like organic or something, whole foods, you know. It's pretty expensive in Japan. So Yoshiko-sensei is certainly riding a bit of a wave at the moment. So there is certainly this big idea that Japan could benefit very, very significantly from returning to its own traditional diet a little bit more, at least introducing it more into day-to-day eating. And that's why people are going to Yoshiko-sensei and they are taking her classes in rising numbers. So we gave cooking class teaching not only cooking, but also lifestyle. Your sense of balance is most important, just a balance, not black and white, not good and bad. So, Sensei, do you ever go to a normal restaurant and just eat? Yeah, every week, you know, weekend, I go out to the restaurant with my husband, and uh, we always go to Japanese-style restaurant. Like, uh, last night, I went to the soba. Right. So, soba, Soba. to to explain, soba is a buckwheat noodle. Yeah, buckwheat noodle. And it's... 100% buckwheat noodle. (laughs) So, it's got lots of fibre. Lot of fibre. People see soba noodles as very... Yeah. Good, healthy so, eating. And no oil. So, Leo, when you go to a Japanese restaurant, are you getting the soba noodles with no oil? Well, I absolutely love soba noodles, but it must be said that I think that they go absolutely brilliantly with tempura, which is deep fried in oil. So, actually, I tend to combine the best of both worlds. <laughs> the benefits to the Japanese diet in terms of health and longevity, I mean, they're quite well known around the world now. How have people responded to that back in Japan? 
Well, it would be nice to say that everyone has realised the benefits and has gone back to the old ways. But as I said, it's difficult. And even Yoshiko Sensei, who is the great kind of evangelist for this, even she admits that these things take time and it's not easy and it does require quite a big difference. I think for younger Japanese who haven't necessarily grown up now, a generation in its 30s that hasn't necessarily grown up with those traditional foods, no matter what they've been taught in school and so on, I think there's probably a bigger work of education that's required to convince a really large proportion of the younger population that that's what they need to be doing. Should we all be moving towards more traditional diets? Yeah, certainly, if you speak not just to Yoshiko-sensei, but if you speak to a large number of researchers, they'll say that actually a return to a more traditional diet would not do the nation any harm at all. I'm Philip Calder. I'm a professor at the University of Southampton in the Faculty of Medicine. I have a research interest in how diet influences human health and disease. So I've been fortunate enough to visit Japan three or four times And the diet is actually very different from any traditional European diet. The way foods are prepared, the way they're presented, actually the way they're eaten. But the first time I went to Japan and now, you know, things like sushi and so on are widely available all over high streets, even in the UK. So portion size is certainly important, but towering over all of that is umami, which is the Japanese word for this fifth flavour that the Japanese actually were responsible for first identifying. So we think of tastes like sweet taste or salty taste or bitter taste or whatever. So there's another taste which is called umami, which is a Japanese word. And the idea is that once you've got that in your meal, the healthiest meal will also be a delicious meal. And that's really important to the whole psyche of Japanese cooking. So we have receptors for this umami taste. And these receptors send signals to our brain. And they also send signals to our stomach and our intestines. So it's getting us ready for what we need to do after we eat something, digest it. And it turns out that this umami flavour or taste is actually linked to appetite. So it actually helps you feel full. So one reason maybe why traditionally Japanese had small portions was the flavour or the taste drove them to feel full sooner than they would feel full if that taste wasn't there where we have our house out in the countryside we often see vegetables drying and they're going to be pickled you've also got a lot of fermented food done of miso which is used in soups and other bits of Japanese cookery so there's a sense that those types of food are really central to the Japanese diet really central to the flavors that you want and expect from a Japanese meal and I think there's a lot of people, certainly of a certain age, that would find it very, very odd to eat a meal without experiencing one of those flavours somewhere in the mix. Fermented foods are foods that have been modified by live bacteria or yeast growing in those foods. The foods either contain some of those live organisms or they contain chemicals that those organisms have produced. And there's evidence that both the organisms and the chemicals they produced can be good for people. So they can have positive effects on the intestinal tract, but they can also have effects actually in the body itself, for example, on the immune system, on how the brain is functioning. So it's something about these live organisms in those foods. Many populations that have been identified as living a long time, for example, in Eastern Europe, 
consume a fair amount of fermented foods as part of their normal diet. So there does seem to be something about these fermented foods and health and longevity. So certainly fermented foods were a big element of what Yoshiko Sensei wanted to show us and what she really believes is important to emphasise when she's teaching people about how to cook healthily for themselves. And so she had set up as an experiment, and she does this in all of her classes, an experiment to show the importance of really organic fermented food over mass-produced, processed food that tries to sort of emulate some of those flavors but doesn't do it in quite the way that she thinks it should and so she'd set up this extraordinary experiment with two bowls of brown rice and two different types of miso paste both of which obviously are fermented but the big mass-produced one was very different from the one that she favored which was from the rural parts of japan and now (laughs) i told you yoshiko sensei has turned the bowl of the other one of the commercial one upside down and it simply sticks to the bowl she turned it completely upside down there's obviously you can't do that with the other one and she uses that in her class to show what sensei what do you use that to show your students this is a real fermented food the rice getting softer and looks like a soup so it's, it's kind of broken it down mm-hmm, broken it? down so uh-huh. with uh, so many many bacteria in this miso that's why the food breaks down. And this miso helps that way, you know. But this miso doesn't help any. Do you feel that Tokyo is a healthy city? Well, I never thought about that way. But you live in Tokyo, you don't use much car, right? That's right. Because mm-hmm. the parking lot is always packed and expensive. I think Tokyo people is healthier than other cities because of they use train or bus system. So that means they walk a lot. So if you want to go somewhere, you have to walk. This is my watch. This counted my steps. So today I walk almost 9,000 steps already. So she's right. A lot of people do spend a lot of time in Japan walking between one thing and the station and their work or home and so on. But that's no real substitute for a slow meal and a meal that's been cooked carefully and with consideration to its benefits. And I think that's also a big part of Yoshiko Sensei's message, which is that you do need to take time on these things. But that's very difficult in an environment where, as we know, Japanese people have got some of the longest working hours in the world. Japanese young people, especially students, are so busy. They go to school. After the school, they have to go to the private school. Between the school and private school, they don't have much time to eat. They have no choice to eat convenient food or, you know, fast food. Most of parents don't care about the food. They just care about the score of the school, you know. So to wrap up, what's actually being done to push people back towards a more traditional diet? And is there any evidence that it's working? Well, Japanese schools, for one thing, have always had an emphasis on trying to prepare students from a very young age for a number of aspects of life. And one of those has always been eating. I think that now, certainly as more has been understood about why the Japanese diet is so special, why it stands out, that is now an increasingly important part of the curriculum. So it's a very slow process, and I think everyone appreciates that, but it is a process that's underway. That's something that probably eventually going to be chalked up as a success. So what can other countries actually learn from this, the school's policy, for example? 
it's going to take a while to really crystallise what those lessons are and whether any of them are really transferable overseas, for example. But I think also the message is actually even simpler than that. It's eat seasonally and eat locally. And I think those two things have been perhaps lost a little bit outside Japan and are only just now returning as an idea of something that you should actively teach young people from an early age. So you've been to one of Yoshiko's classes. Have you actually put any of it into practice? Yes. Actually, I have to say that the bit that she is the most emphatic about is the need to eat brown rice. And she's got a point. I mean, the Japanese diet, having polished white rice with every meal, is not as good as eating it with the roughage that comes with brown rice. So I'm very pleased to say that we have made that change, even though it's a little bit more expensive. And it's absolutely delicious. That's it for this episode of How to Build a Healthy City. You can listen to our show for free on FT.com, Apple Podcasts, Acast, or your podcatcher of choice. And if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, we'd really appreciate it if you could take a minute to rate and review the show. To read more from me and other journalists that you've heard in this FT special report series, visit FT.com slash reports. I'm Darren Dodd. Thanks for listening. The FT's How to Build a Healthy City podcast is supported by Novo Nordisk, a global healthcare company committed to defeating diabetes. I'm in doubt that you can remain or sustain your health by eating undelicious food. When you have had that Thai soup or that uh, Moroccan stew, whether it's because, I mean, you can't take anymore because it's so, it's all over the place in your mouth. I don't know, but I have experienced exactly that. That when I eat food that is amazing, full of flavor, I stop eating at an earlier point in time than if I eat white rice or white bread with butter and jam. Klaus Mayer is a food activist, entrepreneur and co-owner of the restaurant Noma in Copenhagen. Noma has been voted the best restaurant in the world many times. We learned from clinical studies that if food is packed with flavor and taste, so flavor is all the aromatic compounds that exist in food and taste is the concentration of acidity, bitterness and sweetness. All of this constitutes a meal packed with expression that you as the one who enjoys the meal feel like a massive sensual experience. Then you will eat your fill and you'll feel no more hungry at a lower intake of calories. So that is very fundamental. My mother represented the first generation of women in Denmark working outside the home. So in the late 60s and the early 70s, the households were invaded by industrial or semi-industrial products. So we had a lot of meatballs from a tin. We had a lot of margarine and breadcrumbs that always have lived in a symbiosis in Danish food culture because the more you bread your fish or your meat, the more margarine you need to fry it crispy. And for my parents, this was the cheapest way of feeding a family. Herbs didn't exist. Fresh vegetables, very rarely. So why did I become obese? At some point in time, I just decided to fight it, but very much on my own. And I didn't know how to do it, so I ate raw cabbage and oatmeal porridge with skim milk. And I hated my life, but I managed to lose 30 kilos in six months. I just didn't see this eating disorder coming as a, as a side effect.
because of France, I then found a way out of that. What I saw in France was a constant search for joy, uh, deliciousness, even better wines, cheeses, bread, and all of that done in a very communal and convivial way, spoiling the world with amazing food products that would inspire people to make peace, not war. So I said, why can't Denmark have some of this? So from early on, I also saw deliciousness as a weapon against obesity. I'm Lars Ruhrgaard Jorgensen, president and CEO of Nordisk, a global healthcare company with more than 95 years of innovation and leadership in diabetes care. This heritage has given us experience and capabilities that also enable us to help people defeat other serious chronic diseases such as hemophilia, growth disorders and obesity. Part of defeating diabetes means stopping people from getting the disease in the first place. That's why we have started Cities Changing Diabetes with the ambition of halting the rise in diabetes. You can find more at the website cityschangingdiabetes.com. Thanks for listening to the FT's How to Build a Healthy City podcast, supported by Nordisk.